We are moving on in Romans and the Bible reading should be on the second page of your handout if you want to follow along with me. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his, it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's great to be with you, uh, especially if I've not met you before. Uh, I have normally worked here uh, over the years, I won't say how many, but it's been a lot. Uh, but it's my first time back on campus this semester because for various reasons I've been helping uh, together with my wife Jeanette, who is here week by week, uh, but serving at the University of, the, well, the ANU, the Australian National University in Canberra. Uh, so it's good to come back and see some changes, the decking out at the pond there and the stuff outside the building. Uh, facial hair on Brian. <laughs> Some enormous changes around uh, that I come back to. So it's great to be with you. Uh, and, but as always, what, what never ever changes is the fact that God speaks to us in His Word and that our God who speaks to us is so incredibly righteous. And that's what we're going to discover more about in this part of the Bible. And given that God has written his word, please pray with me as I ask him to help me explain this part of his word. We thank you, dear Father, for the privilege it is to meet week in and week out in this place to hear you speak to us in your word. And Father, as we come to hear what is so central in your plans and purposes that we might hear your voice accurately, that I might speak it faithfully, and that we might all respond in a way that is thoroughly appropriate and have this word of yours so seep into our bones, our soul, that we can't help but respond in a matter that is pleasing to you. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as we all know, Brenton Harrison Tarrant was charged for murder 
wounding 50 people, murdering 50 people in a hate-filled attack on two mosques last month in Christchurch, New Zealand. How do you feel about this? How should God feel about this? At the same time, for a period of about three weeks in March, whilst our attention was understandably focused on Christchurch, I read that there were about 120 Christians who were murdered by Boko Haram and Fulani tribespeople in Nigeria. These included women and children who were targeted in their own homes as well as churches. How should we feel about this? How should God feel about it? In the springtime of 1000 BC, a thousand years before Jesus walked this earth, a beautiful woman by the name of Bathsheba was taking a bath when a man named David, who was king of Israel, saw her and lusted after her. And as the king, he seduced her and caused her to fall pregnant and organized the murder of her husband, Uriah. You'll find that account in 2 Samuel chapter 11 of your Bibles. How should we feel about that? How should God feel about that? See, God is righteous. And the word righteous means that he has perfect standards because he is the creator and he is the judge. He has standards and he has standards that he upholds as creator and judge. He is righteous. And God has said that he reveals his righteousness, his standards, in what you've been hearing about if you've been coming here week by week in this news called the gospel. You heard it in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, when the Apostle Paul, who writes this letter, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, note, the righteousness of God is revealed. The standards of God is revealed in the gospel. This momentous news of Jesus. But the gospel is not only news that reveals how God keeps his standards in saving people. It's also news of how he keeps his standards in judging people. We read in Romans 2.16, According to my gospel, God judges, no, judges the secrets of men and women by Christ Jesus. That is, in the gospel, in the news of Jesus, God will also judge. And we can trust him to get that right because he will judge according to his perfect standards. He will judge us fairly according to what we have done relative to his standards. And if that's the case, then don't you and I also stand condemned by his standards? Oh, we may not have murdered like Brenton Harrison Tarrant, but have you ever, ever wanted someone out of your life because of what they've done to you? 
God calls that murder. We may not have committed sexual immorality like King David, but have you ever desired or indeed even had sex with someone who is not your spouse? Jesus calls that adultery. How should God feel about us? <coughs> if you struggle with pornography online, if you are just greedy for more wealth, if you are any of these things, look at what God says in that first sentence with the small 19 on the left-hand side of your outline there. Romans 3 verse 19. He says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See what he says? God's law keeps everyone accountable. Tarrant, Boko Haram, Fulani tribespeople who have murdered Donald Trump, you, me, all of us will be kept accountable by the very law of God. None of us can be judged to have met his perfect standards displayed in his law. No matter how hard we try, all God's law will ever do is to make us conscious of our sin. In fact, the sin within me of falling short of his standards is even provoked by the law, Romans tells us. Have you ever had that experience when it comes to the law? Just, just rules? Some years ago, a friend of mine was boarding a train and then he came across a sign that actually said, Don't spit. Don't spit. He never thought about spitting on the train. But suddenly as he looked at the sign, the salivary glands <laughs> Why is that? Isn't that the law? That's what the law does to us? At the University of New South Wales, behind toilets it says, don't squat. Don't squat. Again, another friend of mine never ever thought about doing that. But suddenly because there was a law, he was tempted to transgress it. <laughs> By our own efforts to obey God's laws, no human being will be justified in God's sight, declared to have met his standards, in other words. We can't meet God's standards. In fact, what we do is seek to transgress his standards when his standards are presented to us. We can't right our wrongs by being good or becoming more religious or obeying the law of God from now on. It doesn't matter if you are King David or Mother Teresa or Gandhi or the Pope. Right? We cannot be declared right by obeying the law. That's what the works of the law are, just obeying the law. All the law of God can ever do is justly damn But now, but now, 
They're the first two words in verse 21, and that, those two words are the difference between heaven and hell. But now. As we come to this text of Romans, from verse 21 to the end of what we have here in our outlines in verse 26, we will engage with what one writer has described as possibly the most important single paragraph ever written in the universe because it's all about God's righteousness and how we can have been declared right with Him. It is an unbelievable paragraph. If there is one paragraph to highlight in your Bible, this is the one. It is the purple paragraph. You've got a purple highlighter? Use it, won't you? Whatever highlight, this is the one. If you don't mark Bibles, make sure you write it down somewhere that this is the one that you can come back to over and over again. Because it's all about God's righteousness. It's all about His perfect standards. It's all about how He deals with those who are fairly condemned according to His standards. And how does He deal with them? Look at verse 21 again. There on your outlines. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, note, apart from the law. Firstly, it is apart from the law. Now, how does that work? See, under the law, God's righteousness reveals that we deserve His just judgment. That's what it is under the law. But there is a righteousness apart from the law. There are standards of God that can be met apart from obeying the law, in other words. Well, that sounds a bit dodgy, doesn't it? If you're a lawyer, you should be thinking, what? Is this, is this righteous? How can that be? But your job as a lawyer is to find these kind of loopholes, isn't it? So some of you are going, yeah, yeah, I want to do it apart from the law. Yes, it is apart from the law. But how does this work? Because it still preserves his righteousness. It still preserves his standards. It's not that dodgy because, look at verse 21 again, but now that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Do you note, firstly, the law and the prophets speak about it in the Old Testament. This is actually not something new. It's something that's been spoken of over and over again, and it all has to do with verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now that word in, in verse 21, is actually the word of. That's what it says in the original. And that is important. Because it's actually speaking about the faithfulness of Jesus. That is, God's righteousness, His perfect standards as creator and judge, are seen in how Jesus faithfully lived his life. It's about his faithfulness. It's about his life. See, Jesus never ever sinned. Jesus always, always obeyed the law. Jesus never lusted in his heart. Jesus never lied. Jesus never murdered in his heart. Never. Jesus was always, always faithful. He alone met the perfect standards of God. It's all about his faithfulness, do you see? And the faithfulness of Jesus is for all who believe. It is for all who trust him. 
What Jesus did in his life is what we can trust in to meet God's perfect standards. Because we can't meet the standards. But he met God's perfect standards for us. For us. It's for all who believe. See, that's what Paul has back in mind in Romans 1. 17, when it says, for in it, right, the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, right? His perfect standards are revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What faith for faith? Well, he's speaking about the faithfulness of Jesus for our faith. That was written by Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith, right, that quote by Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a, a prophet in the Old Testament. And he had to trust God's promise to make things right against all the odds. And in Jesus, Habakkuk's wait is over. It's completely over. For in Jesus, God does make things perfectly right. God's perfect standards are revealed in his faithfulness. And we can trust Jesus' faithfulness as a way of meeting God's standards apart from us having to obey the Lord. It is from faith, from Jesus' faithfulness, for our faith. It is so that we can trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. Does that make sense? Faith, you see, is not blind. It means trusting what is trustworthy, relying on what is reliable, depending on what is dependable, having faith in what is faithful. And God says that Jesus is the one to have faith in because it is his faithfulness alone that meets God's righteous requirements. So let's read on. In verse 22, we read halfway through, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus. You see, those who fall short of His glory, those who are rightly damned before God by His law, which is every single one of us, are also the ones who are justified. The word justified is the same as the word kind of righteous. You know, it's like righteousified. We just don't have the right word in the original. But it's the same thing, right? You're justified, you're righteousified. In other words, you meet those standards. You declare to have met those standards. But how? By His grace. As a gift. As a gift. Please let that sink in, won't you? No matter who I am, no matter what I've done, no matter what my inner secrets are, no matter what I deserve, no matter what the just condemnation is that hangs over my head. I can be declared to have met God's standards. Does that blow you away? I just wonder whether, like me, if you've heard this news before, it can be like a bit of a vaccine. You know what a vaccine is? It's a little bit of the virus that when you get injected with it, creates enough antibodies to stop the disease from forming. 
we can be inoculated enough to have heard about Jesus, you'd start building antibodies against the incredible news this is that should just so shape my mind and life. But I live as if this news isn't true. You know, if this is true, I can look God in the face and hear him say, not guilty. Not through my efforts, not through obeying the law, not through religious acts, but somehow as a free gift. That's what the word grace refers to there. It's not a spiritual substance that infuses me in some sense. Now, grace is an attitude towards us. It is his undeserved generosity, his unmerited favour, poured out as a free gift. We don't do anything. We trust in Jesus who has done everything. There's a difference between doing something and what is done. Jesus has done it. I don't need to do anything in order to be saved, except for simply trusting what Jesus has done. It's all got to do with his faithfulness, what he has done. But how is Jesus' faithfulness a gift? How is it a gift? Look at verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The means to which I, am free, I can freely receive a free verdict of not guilty is through redemption. This is the language of the slave market. It's the idea of buying back a slave at a cost. God offers to buy us back from our slavery to sin and a condemned life under the law. He offers to buy us back, to have my condemnation paid for somehow. And God is offering us redemption through what Jesus has done. For what has Jesus done? He has obeyed the law fully. He has certainly done that. He's met God's perfect standards. But I tell you where he fully met his standards. It's when God put Jesus forward no, as a propitiation. A propitiation for our sins. Now that's a big scary word, isn't it? Five syllable word. Why do all doctrinal words have five syllables? Propitiation. Justification, reconciliation. That's six. <laughs> what are they? Big words. Don't be scared by the words. The idea of propitiation is the idea of God turning his anger aside from us. It's a turning aside of his anger. That's all it means. But it's so big that we want to tell you about the cross of Christ over five days at this mid-year conference. That's why it's five days, because there are five syllables. <laughs> Propitiation. It really is a big topic, and is at the heart of what Christianity is about. And if there is one conference not to miss, it's this one, because it's on the cross. So I want you to feel really guilty if you can't come. <laughs> but praise God, Jesus died to erase your guilt.
didn't punish you and me for our lies or our deceit or our adultery or our malice or our gossip or our anger or our grief. No, he stored it all up, his anger, the raging ocean of righteous fury. And in one terrible moment, he turned it loose on his son instead of us. That's propitiation. And that's great news for those of us who live this side of Jesus. But what about all those who committed atrocities before Jesus? What about the bloodshed that Babylon caused not only Israel but all the other nations? Raping them, pillaging, decapitating others mercilessly. What about the greed and sexual immorality of others? What about King David himself who slept with Bathsheba, organized the murder of her husband to hide his sins? King David! How does God take these acts of evil into account? But look finally at the last two verses in your outline there. Halfway through verse 25, this regarding the propitiation of Jesus. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, God did not leave their sins unpunished because he condoned evil. He wasn't helpless to deal with sin in that time. No, no, no. Rather, it was God's fixed intention all along that at the right time, he would punish these sins, the sins before Jesus and indeed all the sins after Jesus through the death of Jesus. It was as if God gathered all the stones that should have been hurled at King David and in one terrible moment hurled it all on his son a thousand years after David. Because this was the only way in which God could both himself be righteous, actually meet his own perfect standards, and simultaneously be the judge who declares the one who trusts Jesus' faithfulness to also meet God's right perfect standards. You see, that's justice. That's righteousness. But it's also gracious. It's gracious justice. Now, I hope if you're a lawyer here, you're kind of shaking your head because that doesn't make sense. In fact, I hope all of you are kind of thinking, this doesn't make sense. How can you have gracious justice? Because justice is to give someone what they deserve. Grace is to give them what they don't deserve. Right? That doesn't make sense. The two can't come together. Not in this world. Outside of the cross of Christ, of course. Because at the cross... The death of Jesus is both a display of God's grace in offering you and me what we don't deserve, yet also punishing the sins of the world in giving humanity what they deserve in the representative of humanity, namely Jesus Christ. You see why we need to spend five days thinking about this subject? And we've only touched the tip of the iceberg. 
what God did to reveal his righteousness. It's not just academic. Have you ever seen this man, Fabrice Mwamba? Hands up if you've seen him before. Hands up if you've heard about him apart from the two who've seen him. Okay, it's at least the three of us. Fabrice Mwamba used to play soccer in the English Premier League. 24 years old at this time. 17th of March, 2012, so this is some years ago, seven years ago, 42 minutes into his game against the Tottenham Hotspurs. Don't worry if you don't know these names. We're talking about soccer. Right. <laughs> Fabrice Moamba collapsed 42 minutes into the game. There was no one around him. He just collapsed. It became apparent to everyone that he had a massive heart attack in the middle of that game. But within minutes, the medics ran onto the field and other players, would you believe, dropped to their knees and started praying. 40,000 people in the crowd fell silent as they tried to revive him. One guy was a cardiac specialist, happened to be there. He just ran onto the ground. He knew it was something cardiac. <coughs> and while they were seeking to perform CPR on him, Apparently you could hear a pin drop. 40,000 people. And then suddenly out of nowhere, the crowd started to chant. Fulbris Moemba. Fulbris Moemba. And it just started to get louder. It's as if they were willing him on to get better, to, to live. And he was taken off the field after six minutes. His heart actually stopped beating for 78 minutes. But somehow, he survived. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, what did the crowds do to him? Oh, they were cheering him on to die, weren't they? Mocking him, jeering him. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? They were gambling for his clothes. They were spitting on him. Moments earlier, they put a crown of thorns on his head. They were whipping him. They were chanting, crucify him. Crucify him. Can you imagine the 40,000 strong crowd at the soccer field watching Fabrice Moamba mocking him? Can you imagine players around him spitting on him? Could you imagine players around him gambling for his jersey? Could you imagine 40,000 people crying out, Die! 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 Can you imagine that? But that's exactly what they did to Jesus. Why didn't someone just come out and say, Stop this! But what did Jesus do? He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is what God did in response to Brenton Tarrant. This is what God did in response to Boko Haram. This is what God did in response to King David. This is what God did in response to you and me. In the person of Jesus, 
He died to meet his own righteous requirements and offer us justification freely by his grace so that we might be forgiven and saved. But if none of us receives this offer, we will be rightly condemned. The question is, how will we respond to God's offer of forgiveness? And so I need to ask you, if you don't know if you have this forgiveness now, then can I ask you to talk to someone about it? Straight after this, come talk to me, come and talk to anybody who's been up the front, if you don't have someone to talk about it now. But if you know this to be true, and you know that Jesus has died for you, and you know that you are forgiven, then don't waste your life. Start living your life and dying your death to gladly tell others of this great news. There's next week. Bring them along. We're going to look at Mark's Gospel, an incident where we see Jesus face to face. You're going to have the opportunity to see the Mark drama. Please drag your friends along. Pray earnestly that they will hear this news so that they too will come to know Jesus. There are some 20,000 people on this campus apparently. Look how many are in here. How many out there? Let's just say even there is a thousand others who are Christians, who, who are forgiven by Christ, and they know they are. That still leaves 19,000 on this campus alone. But it's not just this campus, isn't it? There are 7 billion people in this world today, and the most liberal estimate of how many Christians there are is about 2 billion. But even if that was the case, that's still 5 billion people in this world who will suffer the righteous wrath of God unless they hear the momentous news of the gospel. And some of the people who come from that 5 billion in other countries are here on our campus. Here is our moment of opportunity, dear brothers and sisters. We have a powerful gospel that can save them from hell for heaven, and that reveals the righteousness of God. And may we live and die for this gospel so that many more will be saved for his glory. But if you don't know this to be true of yourself, please do talk to us, won't you? For we want you to know this news for the glory of Jesus. Will you pray with me? We thank you, dear Father, that you have spoken so clearly in your word. For being our rock and refuge. For being so righteous in sending your Son to die the death that we deserve and rising that we might have life. Please, Father, help us to respond appropriately, begging you for the forgiveness that we don't deserve, or indeed going to the world with this news. But Father, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. We thank you that uh, we get to meet together on Wednesdays. Uh, and we thank you for the way that you have spoken to us today. We thank you that even though we deserve your righteous condemnation, uh, you have now manifested your righteousness apart from the law found in the faithfulness of your son, Jesus. Please help us trust in this promise. Please send us your gift of grace. Give us real and true faith. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son, and we pray for our Easter talks next week. We pray that um, you will be at work through next week's speakers, both powerfully and faithfully, um, for your glory. Please, even now, be prepared be preparing the hearts of all those who will hear the gospel next week. We ask that uh, we will listen and turn from our sinful ways. We ask now that you will use uh, Walk Up, Mark Drama and Uncover Mark to make your name great. Please give us courage and boldness to invite our friends to these, event these events. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters uh, who are with the Christian Union at James Cook University. Please be at work through their Easter services and we ask that many will hear uh, uh, and repent and turn back to you, uh, the true and living God. Um, Father, we just think of those now who are currently unreached in the world, who have, haven't heard your gospel in the name of your son Jesus. Uh, we pray that uh, you will send people uh, with your word uh, to these places uh, and that many will hear and turn back to you. We ask this all in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.